Welcome to City Life Church, and this is our podcast. This is Pastor Dave Diefendorf, and we are so honored to have you join us today. Our passion is to help you discover who God is, grow in the likeness of Jesus, and lead well in this generation. I hope in this message, God will meet you where you're at and take you to the next level in your connection with Him and His kingdom. Enjoy the message. And so I had a little extra time, so I came with a big old word this morning, so uh, let's just uh, walk through it together, and uh, we'll have a good time. So let me pray before we dive in. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that as we gather here, uh, Lord, we're not gathering just to meet people. God, we're not gathering just to have a good time. God, we're gathering to meet you. I pray that, Lord, your word would open itself up to us and, God, paint a picture in our imagination about you and about truth and a reality that we didn't come in here with. So, Lord, I pray that you would just expand our understanding and our knowledge of you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so for the last uh, message for this Advent, this Christmas, uh, I want us to take a look at the plan of God, God's plan. Um, at, we started this series, you know, Christmas, we find ourselves in the middle of a story. Uh, we can't really start with the birth of Christ. Really, it's set in the context of a much larger, grander story going on. And we're going to take a look at one aspect that we haven't yet, but I hope you're kind of ready. God's plan to bring freedom and restoration over the evil forces of darkness to those who come to Him. For these unseen forces, both good and bad, play a huge role in God's story. Um, so let's just take a, our, our scripture that we're going to kind of dive into. Luke 2, uh, verse 8. And we'll just dive right in. That night there were shepherds staying in the field nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said, I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, and you will recognize him by a sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Verse 13, suddenly an angel, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angel had returned to heaven, the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Today, we're going to zero in on uh, these angels. We're going to look at kind of the Unseen Realm storyline from the beginning of the story, to magnify the whole story as well as the meaning behind these angels' proclamation. Glory to God. Yes, there's great joy for all people. The Messiah has come. And what I've learned 
is that particular, these particular supernatural passages that we find throughout the Scriptures of angels and demons of the unseen realm, they're actually very important. They teach specific ideas about God, the unseen realm, and even our own lives. Believe it or not, if we are aware of them and understood what they meant, as difficult and as puzzling as they are, it would change the way we think about God, the way we think about each other, why we are here and our ultimate destiny. So it's no accident that the Bible uses terms drawn directly from family relationships, such as sharing a meal together, like we will in a minute, or working together, to collectively describe God, Jesus, the beings in the unseen realm, believers, you and me. God wants humanity to be a part of His family and of His rule over creation. God wanted the human family to live with Him in a perfect world, along with the family that He had already created. The, un- the angels in the unseen realm, his heavenly host, as we just read. We can't appreciate the drama of the scriptures if we don't include all the characters in the story, including the supernatural characters who are part of this epic. It would be like there's a story in the Old Testament of a man named Elisha. And Elisha was a prophet, and uh, the king of Israel, uh, Elisha, would get words and knowledge from the Lord about where the enemies are going to be, and he would tell the king of Israel where they're going to be. So the king of Israel had a little inside track as to what was going to happen. Well, these enemies find out that it's Elijah that's giving their location away, and so they come after Elisha. And Elisha's surrounded his little hut. It's surrounded by enemies, and he has a servant with him. And the servant, all he sees is the enemies that they're surrounded by, and that brother is freaking out. He's like, Elisha, do you not see? We are surrounded by enemies. And Elisha says this, verse 16, don't be afraid, Elisha told him, for there are more on our side than on theirs. Then Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. And the Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. His eyes were open to the supernatural reality of the angels on his side. And in much the same way, I hope this message opens up our eyes to see the story of the unseen realm and how intentional God and Jesus was with their plan, a plan that God wanted to unfold there's something, good, there's something about good and evil magnified on a cosmic scale that resonates with our hearts. If you look on most epic movies that we see even today, there's usually, in that storyline, in those epic storylines, there's usually a divine calling that the hero of the story doesn't know his calling and he finally finds his calling and he finds what he's made to do. Or there's divine abilities They've got supernatural abilities, they've got supernatural powers, and they're trying to learn how to use those supernatural powers to help people rather than hurt people. Or you've got a divine inheritance. There's a lot lot of storylines where there's a divine inheritance. A son or a daughter who's born maybe in obscurity doesn't realize that they are the king's son or the king's daughter, and they come into realization of who they are. In God, 
You have a divine calling. You have divine abilities. And you have a divine inheritance. And it's because in Ecclesiastes it says that God put eternity in our hearts. God has put eternity into our hearts. There's something about the human condition that longs for something beyond our normal human experience, that we want to experience something divine. Well, our story began in the garden a couple weeks back. We said we needed to kind of get a context of the story that we find ourselves in the middle of. Our story began in the garden. God had determined that Adam and Eve would join the family business, so to speak. They would extend Eden all over the earth. But the enemy didn't want them there. He put himself in the place of God. And as Isaiah 14 said, and this is speaking about Lucifer, he said, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will set on, my, on the mount of assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the Most High. This is what one of God's family members that he had created in the unseen realm who wanted to take God's throne for himself. And so since the serpent's deception led, Adam and Eve, Adam, led to Adam and Eve's sin, he was expelled from God's home, the place where heaven and earth were completely blended together. This was God's home. You could see angels in the sky. I mean, you, everything was out in the open. But then he was banished to the earth. In the verse before in Isaiah 12, it says he was cut down to the ground in biblical language. It's a place where death reigns, where life is not everlasting. And instead of being the Lord of life, he became Lord of death. Which meant that the great enemy now had claim on all over all humans since they too are rebels. Humanity would now need to be redeemed to have eternal life with God in a new Eden. Evil is in this world because people and divine beings have freedom to do evil. Our God isn't a twisted deity who predestines awful things or who needs horrible crimes and sins to happen for some greater plan to work out well. No, God does not need evil, period. His plan will move forward despite it and actually overcoming it, and then finally judging it. A little after the expulsion of the garden, we come to this story in the Tower of Babel. Now again, we're kind of taking a look at this unseen realm storyline in the Scriptures. We come to this Tower of Babel. It's a, the story of the Tower of Babel is simultaneously one of the best known and least understood accounts in the Bible. Deuteronomy 32 says this, describes it in this way. It says, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. What did that mean? Well, until Babel, God wanted a relationship with all humanity, but the rebellion at Babel changed that. God decided to let members of his divine council govern the other nations. When the people became so rebellious, it was at the Tower of Babel, God says, I'm done. And he hands the nations over to fallen angels. And God, out of all of that, 
says, I'm going to raise up one nation that knows me, and through that family, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, and those nations are going to be won back. That was God's plan. God's allotment to the nations, to other gods, frames the entire Old Testament. How? Well, the rest of the Old Testament is about how the God of Israel and His people, the Israelites, are in conflict with the gods of the other nations and the people who live in them. And when He made His covenant with Abraham, He made clear that all the families of the earth were going to be blessed through Him. And His purpose was for the other nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards Him and find Him. Luke writes this in the book of Acts. He says, verse 17, 26, he says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, much like that Isaiah 32 verse, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each of us, for we are indeed His offspring. But the gods who had been set over the nations interfered with God's plan. The gods of the nations that ruled over those nations, they did so unjustly and corruptly in ways that are contrary to God's true wishes and principles of justice. The gods had failed to help the nations walking in darkness find their way back to God. So God gave Israel the law through Moses so that they would be holy he wanted Israel to be set apart from the other people, distinguishable to everyone around, that they were His family. God wanted Israel to attract the other nations to come back to Him. This is why the Bible calls the nation of Israel a kingdom of priests and a light to the nations. The entire nation inherited a position of Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. The law was not how Israelites achieved salvation. It was how they showed loyalty to the God that they believed in. And in Exodus 24, we find an, an interesting story of Moses in that Moses, before getting, right before getting the law, meets with him and a few other of his kind of high counsel, and then it says they met with the Lord face-to-face, -face, that they had dinner together. It's kind of a weird story. Again, these peculiar, kind of odd, supernatural passages, kind of, it's like, what is this? So Moses is there with some elders, and it said that there were actually 70 elders with him. Hmm, 70 elders. Now, if you count the nations in Genesis 10 that God cast aside at the Tower of Babel, you get 70. Those nations were assigned to the sons of God, or lesser gods, when the God of Israel judged the nations. Why 70 elders with these 70 disinherited nations? It was because the goal of the Lord was to always win those nations back. And so right before they get the law, they dine with the Lord with 70 other elders, signifying that that's Part of God's heart is to win those nations back. These rebel powers are the ones that Paul describes in the New Testament as dark powers, the rulers, the authorities, and thrones in the unseen world. They live to oppose God's rule 
and to deprive the Creator of everlasting reunion with His beloved family, human family, through the gospel. And the Lord of the dead's rightful claim to humanity's goal is the extermination of Yahweh's people. That's what He desires, extermination of Yahweh's people. Once Israel entered the promised land, though, the dark power's goal remained the same. However, their strategy changed. Seduce God's people into worshiping other gods, and then Yahweh will get rid of them for us. Interesting. And that's what happened. The nation of Israel, standing strong for God at the beginning, begins to be slowly corrupted by the gods of the other nations. As Solomon married thousands of wives from all over the world, began to corrupt the nation of Israel, and they began worshiping other gods. And so they knew God's, God's kind of covenant with them. And so they said, hey, let's just, we'll get rid of them that way. We'll seduce them. But the powers of darkness knew something else. Yahweh was not going to give up on His plan. The curse in the original rebel foretold that one day a descendant of Eve who would undo the effects of human failure in Eden would come. They knew that at some point the promised one would appear. Although, as Paul told us, they didn't know exactly what God was planning. That's because it was a mystery intentionally hidden by all, even the unseen forces, by the Most High God. However, have we not seen that throughout human history, humans, us, us people, (laughs) we cannot be trusted with reviving God's Edenic kingdom rule. Only God Himself could do that. Only God could meet the obligation of His own covenants. God would have to become a man. God would have to fulfill the law and the covenants Himself and take upon Himself the penalty for all human failure. But pulling off that unthinkable solution meant it would have to be kept secret from everyone, including the intelligent supernatural beings hostile to His purposes. God's enemies, human and divine, had to be kept in the dark Everything depended upon the death and the resurrection of the God-man. So the plan of God, that Jesus would die and then rise from the dead to reverse the curse of the fall and break Satan's claim over humanity. It isn't at all evident in the New Testament in dozens of places. You can't really see it, but it's interesting. Even the disciples didn't really understand what Jesus was all about. They just thought he was a good prophet that could you know, heal. He might be one that could maybe turn over the power of Rome, but they, they just didn't understand that the plan of God, and it was only after Jesus resurrected and he goes and ministers to his disciples that it says that he opened up the scriptures so they could see. Jesus knew that his death and resurrection would pay the humanity's debt, leaving Satan with no claim on our souls. The kingdom was the beginning of the end for the Lord of the dead. Think about all that this required. Jesus had to somehow make the supernatural powers of darkness manipulated to manipulate men to kill him, all without understanding what they were doing. As Paul had said to the Corinthians, if they really knew what the results were going to be, they would have never crucified the Lord. The acts of Jesus recorded in the Gospels 
leading up to the crucifixion, healing the sick, preaching about the kingdom of God, forgiving sinners, confronting corruption and hypocrisy, were more than just random acts of a traveling wise man who occasionally did miraculous things. There's more going on in the gospel stories than meets the eye. So we've covered some ground here, haven't we? <laughs> we've covered from creation, the Tower of Babel. We covered this meeting, this kind of meeting with Moses with the 70. We covered with how the enemies changed the strategy when it came into uh, leading the people into exile. That's the backdrop of this, these spiritual forces at war with God. But I want to look at four key moments since we're on this kind of tone Instead of just landing, hey, Merry Christmas, now we're at Jesus' birth, Merry Christmas, I want to pour, point out four key things in Jesus's, that happened in Jesus' lifetime that illustrate the cosmic war over God's plan. There has always been resistance to the plan of God making all things right. So hang in there. Okay? We, we're good on time. I, I went really fast. All right. <laughs> Now we're here. I usually have five pages of notes. I got like nine, and so I'm like, hey, we got to roll. But hey, we're ahead of schedule right now. So <laughs> way to get here, y'all. Congratulations. Halfway time. All right. No, we're kind of, we're more than halfway. Anyway, here we go. So four moments in Jesus' life that illustrate the cosmic war over God's plan. All right. The supernatural moment number one. Moment number one, the supernatural forces that have always been at war with God seem to react when the wise men came from the east to come worship the newborn king of the Jews. Matthew 2 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came, from Jeru came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king... King, the current king of the Jews, heard this, he was troubled. He was caught off guard and asked them to return. He asked these wise men, says, hey, he questions them a little bit more, and then to find out, you know, where's, where'd you, when did you start seeing this star? Where was it kind of over? Where are you kind of going? Anyway, he kind of in, interrogates them. And then he says, hey, when you go, when you find this king of the Jews, come back to me so that I too may worship him. <laughs> it's not what he had in mind, but that's what he said. But the Spirit of God led these wise men to go directly back home and not circle back with Herod. So after they kind of met Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord says, hey, don't go back to King Herod, just go back home. And so King Herod knows that he kind of got duped by these wise men. They left town, and he got so angry, he issues an order to kill all boys two years and under in and around Bethlehem to wipe out any of God's plan. The spiritual forces became aware of something being orchestrated about this birth. And so they use Herod to wipe out all the kids. They are frightened about the Lord's plan. They're frightened. Supernatural unseen forces are frightened about God's plan, and so they motivate a human being to do something tyrannical. Hmm. 
Moment number two. After Jesus' baptism, he was driven into the wilderness. That the devil came to tempt Jesus lets us know that Satan knows who Jesus is at this point. He was the Messiah on a mission to reinstall God's home rule on earth. Satan, the ruler of this world, John 12 tells us, understood Jesus would set his sights on Satan's dominion. The nations God has cast aside at the Tower of Babel before creating Israel. So he offers Jesus the nations. The very thing that Jesus came to win back, Satan says, I'll give you all these nations if you would just bow down once to me. He was giving him what he came to get. But he simply told Satan to get out, get lost. God would take back what was his when and how he wants. The mission of Jesus wasn't, about reclaim, uh, wasn't just about reclaiming the nations. It was about rebuilding a family. Rebuilding a family. Jesus could have come and said, God, our eternal general, our everlasting general in the sky. No, he says everlasting father. He's trying to rebuild his family. Moment number three. Immediately after this temptation in the wilderness, Jesus begins calling his disciples. He first calls 12, which was a big broadcast sign that Jesus has come also for the house of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel that have been scattered into exile. God is bringing them back together. But then we find a curious Curious kind of deployment of Jesus in, Acts, in Luke 10. In Luke 10, it said that Jesus sends out 70 disciples out into the villages and towns. Well, I thought he had the 12. Where'd the 70 come from? Why the 70? Well, he sends out 70. It signaled that this new kingdom is going to take back the nations. It was a precursor to the Great Commission. The number telegraphed the idea that the disciples of Jesus would reclaim the nations to, for the kingdom rule of God. The repetition of the number 70 is a message. God's new earthly family, Israel, the children of Abraham, would be the means to recover what was lost. Everyone who believes in Jesus is a child of Abraham by faith. That means that you and I are tasked, if you're a follower of Christ, of taking back the nations from the gods. It's our task to turn people under the spiritual dominion of, dark, of other gods to be, have faith in Jesus. You are God's new humanity, new priests and ambassadors of a greater kingdom. And it says that when the 70 returned back to Jesus, as they were kind of sent out and they came back, Jesus tells them that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In other words, the great reversal has now begun. That great reversal of winning those nations back has now begun. Moment number four. This is the last moment, okay? But I think it's super cool. So let's, okay. So after three years of teaching and training his disciples, Jesus brings uh, his, his group, his disciples, to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, that's the city's Roman name. In the Old Testament, it's, it's a town called Bashan. 
And Bashan was considered the gateway to the realm of the dead, the gates of hell. Uh, actually, you go back, the, the city of Bashan is actually kind of important in that uh, when Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt and into the promised land, they freak out, they send out spies, 10 of them come back and said, no, these giants, there's just too much, there's, these people are too big, we, we got to get out of Dodge, God's not going to give us the nations. Two guys said, hey, God's going to give it to us. Anyway, they believe the 10 and they go back into the wilderness. Well, God leads them in the wilderness to this town called Bashan. And the same type of enemies that were in the promised land were in Bashan. And at Bashan, it was the nation of Israel defeated this city. And it was, anyway, so that's, but anyway, it was known as the realm of where the realm of the dead was. Caesarea Philippi was situated at the foot of this pivotal mountain in Scripture called Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon. It's the place in Jewish thinking that the sons of God came to the earth in the rebellion in Genesis 6. That when the fallen angels rebelled, it said that they came down on Mount Hermon. This was the ground zero for like evil, cosmic, dark forces. And Jesus brings his disciples there and has a few conversations. In this place, Jesus asks his disciples who they think he is. Peter boldly declares that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. P Jesus replies, You are blessed, Simon, son of John, on of John, son of John. It should be son of John. Anyway, uh, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you, you did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will rebuild my church. I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. The gates of hell will not prevail. The secret plan to send Jesus to pay the penalty for our humanity's sin would be a full frontal assault on the gates of hell. It was a verbal challenge by Jesus. The Lord of the dead and his forces would not be able to withstand the kingdom of God. As if this verbal challenge wasn't enough, Jesus goes one step further. It says six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, Mark 9, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, Mount Hermon, to be specific. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. What? What is going on here? Right? This is peculiar supernatural stuff going on. Jesus takes his three close comrades, goes up on Mount Hermon, the very place where the sons of God who rebelled against God came down. And he transfigures himself. It's, he, let, he revealed to Peter, James, and John and all the supernatural forces that he was the embodied glory of God. He was, pulling, he was putting Satan and the powers of darkness on notice. I've come to earth to take back what's mine. The kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, I'm here. Now do something about it. And it's no accident that immediately after the transfiguration, Jesus turns towards Jerusalem and begins telling his disciples he was going to die there. And they didn't want to hear it. But Jesus had baited Satan and the rest of the evil powers into action. There was a sense of urgency to get rid of him. But that's just what Jesus wanted. His death was the, th the key to everything. Everything Jesus did was intentional. He had a clear view of his role in reviving the kingdom of God on earth 
so that it would progress until the day he returned, a day that would usher in a global Eden. So my question is, is has God woken you up to the true role you've been born to fulfill? Believers brought into God's family counsel are brought in not to be observers but participants. And the decision to participate in God's great reversal is ours, is yours. Do we participate? Or do we just chalk up to Jesus as our Savior? Yeah, I believe in Him. I'll go to heaven one day. You're missing out on the very purpose that God made you for, is to help the rest of His kingdom family on earth reach the nations. So what if in the midst of celebrating and relaxating, we take some time over this holiday for God to open up the reality of the world in which we live, to see the depths in our spirit, the beautiful truth of why God came down and dwelt among us. As John 3 said, the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. The Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. The enemy's rightful claim to rule over humanity had been broken. Now all who come to him with believing allegiance are delivered out of the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his dear Son. You're adopted. He restores you. He restores what was lost. Everything the enemy tried to rake and steal and pillage from your life beforehand, God wants to restore to you moving forward. Not only that, is He gives you an identity. He tells you, you're my son, you're my daughter, and this is who you are. You're adopted in my family. Nothing can ever separate you from my love. I've given you my Holy Spirit, which is me in you, and with that you have everything you need for life and godliness. And it's in my word that my word sets people free. My truth. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. It's not up there. I'll just read it. Don't you know Don't you people know that you're going to judge the world? Don't you know that you're going to rule even over the angels? Paul brings a sobriety to our life. That it's not just about fun and happiness. Maybe, maybe our life's meaning and purpose can be found in throwing our entire life in the plan of God. And the plan of God in this generation. Because if you don't notice already, those fallen gods are still empowering people to make tyrannical decisions. There is a supernatural war still going on. And Jesus has given you and I the remedy, which is Him. Not only are there corrupt and malign people in our world, but there's still corrupt and spiritual forces looking to squash human flourishing. Do you see them at work all over the world or in our culture? I pray that like Elijah's servant, that God would just remove the veil to see, whoa, I'm involved in the, like the most epic cosmic spiritual war and I've found myself with nothing to do with what you did. You found yourself on the right side because of Christ. And so now, our task as God's people 
is to see our nation and all the nations be one back to Christ. You and I are God's agents to restore Eden in the here and now, looking forward to the day when Jesus brings that plan to a climax. Our lives are a glimpse either of a life with God or a life without God. Either we stand against the darkness and the tyrannical forces of evil, sharing the abundant life God wants everyone to ultimately experience, like Jesus did, or we won't. So my hope is that we throw our whole lives into Him and His purposes for us in this generation, to where our lives would proclaim, like Luke 2, glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. Let's pray. Father, we thank you from the depths of our heart that you sent Jesus to be the remedy over the schemes of the enemy and the power of darkness over humanity. God, as these angels proclaim, glory to God in highest heaven. There's so much joy for all the people that the Messiah has come. And so, God, we find ourselves in the middle of a kingdom that is now and not yet. Father, I pray that, Lord, over this next few weeks, God, that you would open up our eyes to see the spiritual battle that we find ourselves in. God, and that you've given us authority because of what Christ did. God, you've given us authority back as if it was in the garden. God, you've given us your authority to rule and reign with you. Lord, I pray that, Lord, you'd, if there's any allegiance that we've been given ourselves to with other gods, the God of lust, which lead, just the God of addiction, God of pride, of money, success, happiness, God, whatever other God that we have bowed our heart or mind to, Lord, I pray that you would bring it up to our attention right now. God, what are those gods that we've bowed to? Father, let's just be dead honest in a moment. God, what are the gods that we're bowing to? Because, God, that's, that's been the scheme of the enemy from before Babylon. God is to seduce God's people to worship other gods. So, Lord, right now, we just take authority over that. We just repent of falling into agreement with those other gods. God, we repent of, uh, uh, of being played by the enemy. And, Lord, we just ask you, God, for your forgiveness in Jesus' name. But, Lord, we take on you. We take on your name, Jesus. Let us walk in holiness. Let us walk in your abundant life that you came to give us. And, Father, we thank you, God, for the authority that you've given Lord, that we can resist the devil and he will flee. God, because you put your authority inside of us. And so, Father, I pray that, Lord, not only our own lives, but, God, as we see the enemy involved in the loved ones' lives around us, God, I pray that you would give us an unction and a courage, God, to lead in those moments. God, to draw people's attention beyond just the drivel that they're living off of into the abundant life that you have for them. So, Father, I pray just for divine moments over this holiday to glorify you 
and to see the kingdom of darkness push back. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, whew, that felt like a good meal right there. Uh, but you're probably still physically hungry, so um, everything's downstairs. Are we ready to go? Where's Okay, she's down there getting ready to go. All right, should be ready. Um, thanks so much for coming. If you're not joining us for a potluck, have an amazing, amazing holiday. Join us for uh, Christmas Eve if you're going to be in town, 5 o'clock. Um, but let me just make this quick. Let me pray for just for our meal just so we can kind of get after it. Uh, Lord, thanks for uh, this time together. Thank you so much for the people that you're growing together uh, for your grand, great purpose. Uh, let us have a great meal. Lord, bless the hands that made it, and uh, let us vote on some good soups. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a good Sunday. Well, we hope this message has inspired you and challenged you to be the man or woman he's called you to be now and to see his kingdom grow in every area and arena of life. God is with you more than you know. For more information about our community here in Kansas City, please visit us online at citylifekc.org, and we'll see you next time on the City Life Podcast.